You know how yesterday we talked about the esteemed BBC's investigation into the way menus are designed to force us to order specific things? Yes, 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 yes. Well, I've accidentally done my own investigative work into this and that I opened a text message uh, from my sibling, Hazel. Uh, Hazel used to have a cafe in Auckland and they messaged me once that episode was live to confirm that they too dabbled in menu engineering. What was funny here, though, was that Hazel started doing menu engineering to stop people from ordering a certain item because it was the most difficult slash most time-consuming and Hazel couldn't be bothered. <laughs> I love that. What was it? What's so hard to make that you don't want people to order it? Um, the cafe was just toast and yummy things. Like it was just toast and toppings. Uh, and the most time-consuming one to make was the bacon and eggies one. And Hazel noticed that it was getting ordered all the damn time. And guess where it was? On the blackboard menu, top um, right-hand corner, like the BBC said. Of course it was. Putting things in the top right-hand corner is where your eye goes to first, people. So Hazy did a shuffle, uh, chucked peanut butter and jelly up there instead, and what huh. do you know, once PB&J was in the top right-hand, bestseller. That is almost conclusive proof because I would a hundred times rather eat bacon and eggs than peanut butter yeah. and jelly on toast and yet yeah. that's that changed that much oh my god Tazel needs to contact the BBC oh I should I mean I, I've consolidated this information and You're reporting right. it you have opened a text message and you should be rewarded for that I'm sorry also big joke is on Hazel here because every time I walked into that cafe I still ordered the bacon and eggies it came with tater tots of course I'm ordering it <laughs> <laughs> on that note oh Yoda, this is newsable I'm Jess and I'm Imogen and this is what's worth talking about the pause and fighting between Hamas and Israel has been extended to allow more hostages to be freed. The Guardian's World Affairs editor explains what we know so far. She was one of the most prominent COVID-19 commentators, but why did Susie Wiles take her employer to court? Scientists believe we might be able to better predict bigger earthquakes, but only if they're months away. And we have officially found New Zealand's worst tattoo of 2023. You don't want to stick with us to find out what it is. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. After weeks of horror for the people of Gaza, finally a reprieve. The initial four-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas was extended yesterday after promises by Hamas to release more hostages. For now at least, the news is flooded with images of hostages being reunited with their families after almost two months. But how long can this peace last and what impact will these hostage releases have on the direction of the war? Well, to talk us through the details, we're joined by Julian Borger, the World Affairs Editor for The Guardian. Kia ora, Julian, and welcome to Newsable. Thanks for having me. Julian, we're seeing some pretty emotional videos of hostages being reunited with their family in Israel. What, what do you think these releases are doing to the Israeli appetite for the conflict with Hamas? From all, all accounts, there is solid backing for this pause to allow the hostages to be freed. But there's also solid backing for the IDF, the Israeli Defence Forces, to continue their campaign against Hamas after this is over. There is not a lot of appetite for this pause lengthening into an enduring ceasefire. Despite the international kind of will for that, I guess. Yes, there's this feeling that the government and the IDF have pledged to press their campaign through until Hamas has been eliminated as a military threat and a political presence in Gaza. They're a long way from that. Obviously, there are a lot of uh, Hamas have 
melted away to southern Gaza and even the IDF claims of how many Hamas fighters have been killed are relatively small compared to the estimated size of the Hamas force. So they couldn't claim to the Israeli people that they had crippled Hamas as they set out to do. So all the expectations are that after this hostage deal with its extension is over, we will be going back to conflict. The question is, what will that conflict look like? And you're seeing mm. heavy pressure now from Washington to make sure that the way that Israel conducts war in Gaza is changed. What are we learning about how these hostages have been held hostage, I guess, while they've been in Gaza? All uh, that we've heard so far is that once they were in custody of Hamas, they were treated relatively well. But the White House today cautioned that we don't know the full story and that not all of the hostages have been held by Hamas. They've also been held by other groups like Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And we're told of various sort of criminal clans that operate inside Gaza. Uh, so we may not uh, know the full story in terms of hostage treatment. With these ceasefire extensions, it, it seems like, at least from the one that we've had recently, do you see it could get extended every couple of days if Hamas drip feeds these hostages 10 for a day? It could do. It is a question of whether they take the decision that the hostages that they've referred to up to now as being military because they're of a certain age, they're males of a certain age, therefore potential, either actual or potential reservists. Mm -hmm. And that is where it may get tricky when they have let all the women, children, the elderly and sick out. And when it comes down to the mere military age, then, you know, it'll get tougher. Julian Borgia, World Affairs Editor for The Guardian, thank you very much for taking the time to explain all of this to us. A pleasure. We have managed to keep the Christmas chat at bay until now. It's December this week, and you better believe my wee Christmas tree is already up. Did it over the weekend, last weekend. But we want to know, are you a real or a fake Christmas tree household? This is probably the first of many a Christmas poll. Uh, it's an easy one to start off with. It's light. It's fun. Make sure you get involved. Find us on Insta by searching Newsable NZ. You'll know her name and her face and her pink hair, Susie Wiles, a microbiologist who was very prominent in the media throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, and she was also named New Zealander of the Year in 2021. Well, Susie is back in the news for a slightly different but still kind of related reason. She's taken her employer, Auckland University, to the Employment Court, alleging it failed to adequately protect her against the harassment she received for her commentary on COVID-19. After a two-week hearing in Auckland, the case has wrapped. So here to tell us what happened is staff reporter Melanie Early, who has been covering it all. Mel, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. Mel, take us back to the beginning here. We briefly just mentioned it, but what was it that Susie Wiles accused the University of Auckland of? So Dr Wiles has accused the University of Auckland of not taking care of her health and safety while at work. And this is all in relation to basically her public commentary she's done around the COVID-19 pandemic over the last couple of years. How extreme were the threats that she received while she was making this kind of commentary and in the public eye during the COVID pandemic? Some of these are pretty extreme. Um, on the first day of the hearing, actually, her lawyer, Catherine Stewart, played some of these threats for the court. A lot of it was just kind of calling her horrible 
names accusing her of crimes against humanity. Um, there were threats to hang her, to kill her, wow. assault her, things of that nature. So pretty horrible stuff, mainly coming from a group of people who opposed uh, lockdowns and the vaccine mandates. And so when Wiles alleges the uni didn't do enough to protect her following these threats and then from these threats, were there examples of what she felt they should have done? Yes. So um, it was laid out quite well that she first went to the university, I think it was in April 2020, to let them know that she was receiving emails, harassing emails. And basically she's alleged that she tried to raise the harassment with the university a number of times throughout 2020 and 2021, but that nothing substantial was done until 2022 when they finally decided to do a risk assessment for her. What's the university's response been to all this? Yeah, well, the university has absolutely refuted that it didn't take these threats seriously. And they've kind of given an outline of some of the things they said they did do, such as they set up a monitored inbox for harassing emails, the risk assessment, of course, and later on in the piece, did pay for security cameras to be put up at Dr. Wiles's home. Is there a grey area, Mel, because Susie Wiles is commenting so much, partly in a professional capacity for the uni, and I guess partly also as an expert, almost in a personal capacity? Is there a line about how much protection that the uni had to give her? Obviously, Dr. Wiles has said she felt compelled to speak publicly to kind of help people through this pandemic and to basically stop people from dying. Whereas the university says, while they encourage and they're happy for professors to speak to the media, but it's not something that they have to do. During the risk assessment, they did mention that um, she should maybe pull back from speaking publicly. So there's been a bit of kind of back and forth on whether or not that was an attempt to silence her, which Wiles says it was, whereas the university says, you know, they absolutely weren't trying to silence her. If the decision is reserved, when might we, like, what happens? If it's reserved, it could be a little bit of a wait. Given, you know, the time of year and Christmas coming up, it's likely that we might not get an answer until um, January or February of 2024. We'll see. (laughs) Melanie, early stuffs reporter who's been covering this trial. It'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. Mel, thanks for your time. Thank you guys so much. Kia ora, Aotearoa, and welcome to The Big Stuff Quiz. I'm your host, Imogen Wells, alongside my assistant, the wonderful Chris Reid. Hello, everyone. Each week, we'll release a new episode to test your wits with two rounds of ten questions. One potluck round, and another that's very loosely themed. A bit tangential, even. Such a good word. If you think you're up for the challenge, go and follow our show on your favourite podcast platform, The Big Stuff Quiz, is out now. The Big Stuff Quiz is proudly brought to you by Melbourne. Every bit different. New Zealand's worst tattoo, as judged at this year's tattoo festival, is still to come. And fair warning, it's a little bit rude, but also very, very funny. So to make sure you never miss our rude and funny yarns, make sure you're following us on your favourite podcast platform. New research, which is going to have a big impact hopefully for us on the shaky aisles, suggests unique seismic signals may be detected months to even years before some large earthquakes. 
Scientists have studied the huge 7.8 earthquake that hit part of Turkey this year and in a report in the journal Nature Communications, the researchers suggest their findings might help progress forecasting of some future large earthquakes. So, to help us work out the significance of this research, we're joined by Dr Jen Andrews, a GNS science seismologist who specialises in early earthquake warning. Kia ora, Jen. Thanks for coming on. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. So, the study mentions both warning and forecasting. Are those different things when we're talking about earthquakes? Uh, They are with the technologies that we currently have. So you may have heard about earthquake early warning. There are some systems around the world, countries like uh, the United States and Japan and Mexico. Those systems actually operate once an earthquake has happened. So the science behind those is that the earthquake has already begun. We're just trying to detect it as quickly as we possibly can and send out warnings before shaking arrives at some of the nearby population centres. But we can never detect right on top of the earthquake because it's already started to happen. So that's earthquake early warning. Forecasting and prediction, that's about looking at long-range patterns of seismicity and trying to decide how likely it is that we'll get an earthquake of a particular size in a particular time frame. So quite a different way of working with a lot more uncertainty. So can you explain a little bit more about this research into the seismic signals? Because surely we, we know there are small rumbles ahead of a big one. What the authors of this paper have done, and they've looked in great detail to really dig into the sort of complexity of the activity that was seen before the magnitude 7.8. And from that, they've been able to see changes through time. So in those eight months before the big event happened, they saw a difference in the patterns of seismic activity. But in order to see that, there's quite a number of different factors that they had to look at, both in terms of where these these rumbles were going on, how often they were going on, how they were relative to each other. So really quite a a complicated picture. Are we being too optimistic when we say this could really help improve early warning for earthquakes? Especially, you know, us living here, it would just be great to have a bit of a heads up. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's great to be optimistic, but it's optimistic on a geological timescale because it's going to take us a long time (laughs) to put the the monitoring in place and the science in place uh, to use this in a really deterministic sense to help us to, say, evacuate or give people... Um, sort of specific notice that something big is coming. How far away are we from developing really specific systems or is it just impossible to tell what fault will move and when? Uh, So our current understanding, unfortunately, is the latter, that um, in terms of that really predictive power, like saying something big's going to happen tomorrow or next week, we're not there yet. That's that's a long way off for us. So that, that science is just beginning. Jen Andrews from GNS Science, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The 11th New Zealand Tattoo and Arts Festival was held over the weekend in Taranaki. Beautiful part of the country. Absolutely stunning. Isn't it? Now, this was the affair of all affairs. If you're into tats and the tattoo art of the world, there were around 250 tattoo artists there. And there was music. There was BMX riders. I'm willing to bet there were some banging food trucks there. I don't have that confirmed. That's just a hunch. But there was also... A competition for the worst tattoo. And the winner, the person deemed to have the worst tat, won $2,000 worth of laser removal. So here to tell us about this year's worst tattoo in New Zealand is Brian Neville from Auckland's Sacred Laser. Kia ora, Brian. Thank you for coming on News of All. Uh, Kia ora. Thanks for having me. All right. Tell us about this year's worst tattoo of the festival. If any kids are listening, maybe stop listening now. <laughs> 
Oh no. Parents, that's your warning. So the winner has basically a ruler drawn sort of on the inside of her index finger and then the words your dick next to it. <laughs> we can only assume what that's meant. We can only assume. We don't know. <laughs> Did they have to give any explanation as to like how how on earth that tattoo came about? Oh no, we never we never got that far. And it was all it all happened very, very quickly. But it definitely got the best crowd response as well. It always brings in a big crowd, this particular competition as part of the festival. I can imagine. Did lots of people enter? What were some of the other entries like? Oh, there was one other, uh, a penis with wings. That was interesting. Oh. And then it was actually quite well done. <laughs> oh, so it was like a beautiful penis with yeah. wings. <laughs> it was actually really well done. But um, the others were just hot messes. It's probably the only way you ride them. Those tatters executed um, poorly. Yeah. Yeah. This is not the first time you guys have run this competition, is it? What, what has been some of the, the clangers from years gone by? I think the... Girl who won this year, I think she entered it last year as well, actually, but was a, with a different tattoo. Oh, no. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. Someone needs an intervention. Yeah. No. But is this your main clientele, people who've got terrible tattoos and need them removed? The answer is we just see such a mixed bag. I don't know, a straighty 180, you know, middle-aged housewife is coming in and getting, like, a Playboy bunny removed from her ass that she got in the night. <laughs> You know, I'm gonna you wouldn't meet oh, with no. Um or like we do lots of gang members as well. So oh yeah, people leaving gangs and getting rid of mm-hmm. tats. So also people staying in the gangs, but just being a bit smarter about um you know where these tattoos are. And, and I guess if they get them removed from the open spots, then they can go about their business a little bit more undetected. If I had to put it into like a like you know, if I had to say where our biggest group of people was, I would say it is women. And they're sort of, I guess, mid to late 20s who maybe got tattooed two or three years ago. After a couple of bevies in Bali, anything makes sense, doesn't it, Briar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Briar, personal question. Do you come? Do you have any tattoos that you want removed? Do you come at this from a place of empathy for these people? <laughs> I got my first tattoo when I was 16. I'm 44 now. And I've got, you know, many tattoos since then. And I'm really fortunate in that I somehow made really good choices when it comes to tattoos. In other aspects of my life, I've definitely made poor decisions. <laughs> if you could laser those ones. Yeah. <laughs> Brian Neville from Auckland Sacred Laser, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. That was awesome. Oh, you're welcome. Emma, you've confessed to me off mic that you do have a tattoo. So next question is, is it is it some fine writing along your ribs? No. Is it a Playboy bunny tattoo on your bottom? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> On my bottom. Is it on your bottom? <laughs> is it either of those things? I'm sorry, Jess, you're going to be disappointed. It's neither. Uh, it's some song lyrics on my back, though, which kind of is almost as bad. It's a very mid-20s tattoo. I love it. The great thing about having it on your back is you forget about it. True. Yeah, you never have to see it. I don't ever have to see it. Genius. In fact, it's, I only remember I have it when someone's like, oh, wow, you got a tattoo. And I'm like, oh, would you look at that? <laughs> a 10-year-old Imogen did get a tattoo when she left home. <laughs> I hope your whole family knew about that already because they're going to know about it now. <laughs> that is Newsable for today. Kia ora, I'm Jess. And I'm Imogen Wells. Have a banger and we'll catch you soon. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support.